Well, when we're children, you know, we listen to uh, fairy tales, and usually there's a prince and a princess, and uh, before the story's over with, they get married and live happily ever after. You know, but what do you do when that's not your story? In fact, I'm not sure it's anybody's story in that sense. Even good marriages aren't good marriages because of some magical ever after thing. They're good marriages because they work through the difficulties. They work through the the things that get thrown at them. In fact, reality is not so much happily ever after as maybe this cartoon right here, uh, if you can identify with this. There you are with your friends, and there's your husband clipping his toenails. Uh, you know, in his boxer shorts. Maybe that's the better picture of what reality and marriage really looks like. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to turn it. We're going to spend the majority of our time in one Old Testament book, the book of First Samuel. Towards the front of your Bibles, in a few books, First Samuel chapter 1 is where we're going to start this morning. If you don't have a Bible... Here, you can come this way. And even if you do, then probably uh, you'll want to pull this sheet out of your bulletin. It's the message notes. It's got all the verses that we're going to look at together this morning, as well as it also has um, some blanks that you can fill in, and maybe even you can squeeze in a little bit of notes in the margins if we say something else that maybe connects with your situation. But we want to deal this morning with the Old Testament story of Hannah. And so, once you follow along with me there in 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it tells us that there was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. Now, Already we're getting the picture here, aren't we? There's going to be trouble, right? Two wives. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had none. So here's our central character, Elkanah, and he has two wives. He has a wife named uh, Penina and he has another wife named Hannah. And Penina had lots of kids. But Hannah, she had no children. And so verse 3 tells us that year after year, this man, Elkanah, would, he went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. And whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. So this was a practice of theirs. This was a ritual. It's something they did. Every year, they went on this journey to make their sacrifices. And every year, Elkanah would would give portions of meat to Penina and to all of her sons and all of her daughters. Now, I want you to imagine just for a minute what this was like for Hannah. Because, see, Hannah didn't have any children. And in that day, in that culture, children, women having children, that's where they gained their self-worth. That was the culture of which they lived. And so here's 
Hannah in this situation had to be very painful for her. See, at home, she could kind of do her own thing. You know, she could kind of avoid, you know, all of those children. She could avoid uh, Penina. All of that could happen. But see, when you went on the road for this journey and this part where they were there at worship, that was a whole different story. And so here's the first point I want you to, to see in the story already. It's just this, that situations in life will disappoint you. Situations in life will disappoint you, will hurt you, will wound you. That is going to happen. And so that's what's going on for Hannah right here. And verse 5 tells us, But to Hannah, Elkanah gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival, that's Penina, he She kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival, Penina, provoked her until Hannah would weep and she wouldn't eat. So here's Hannah. She can't have any children. You know, maybe that's some of you this morning. It's not the social stigma that it was in that culture, but even in our culture... It definitely can cause pain. It definitely can cause hurt and, and all that comes with that. Maybe that's you. Maybe you can identify with the pain that's Hannah, that Hannah's going through. Or all of us can identify, but maybe that particular issue is especially painful for you. And here's Penina, though, who has lots of children, and she rubs it in Hannah's face year after year, so much so that she wouldn't eat that she would weep, that she would cry. You know, maybe there's someone in your life right now who's making your life more difficult. Maybe someone in your life who's making your marriage more difficult. What I think is interesting about this married couple, Elkanah and Hannah, is in the scriptures as you're reading them, you see that Elkanah really does love his wife. He really does love her. He just doesn't understand Look back up in your notes or in your Bible at verse 4. It says, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and all her sons and daughters. Verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. So here's Elkanah. He sees that his wife Hannah is very upset So he does for her what he wished someone would do for him and that he gives her an extra burger. (laughs) Because that's going to make her feel better. I mean, there he gave just one portion to everybody else, but to her, because this would have met his need, he gives her an extra steak. He doesn't get it. We ran across this Dave Barry cartoon what women want to be loved to be listened to to be desired to be respected to be needed to be trusted and sometimes just to be held what men want tickets to the super bowl <laughs> <laughs> women When we have a problem, 
We come to our husband and we rant and we rave and we tell him what happened at the office or we tell him what happened that day at home. We go on and on and on. Now, after you've done that, what do you want him to say? You want him to say things like, oh, honey, I bet that was hard. I bet, I bet that was difficult. Here, dear. Come here and just let me hold you. But instead, (laughs) how do we usually respond, husbands? Yeah, let me fix that. You've been there, haven't you? You've lived it. This is your life, isn't it, Sean? (laughs) See, what we want to do, men, naturally, what we want to do is go into action steps to fix it, to solve it. John Gray wrote a very popular book called Women Are From Venus and Men Are From Mars, in which the premise of the book is the differences between men and women. And that's why we have conflict a lot of times, because we're speaking different languages. Listen to what he has to say here. He says, this Martian, cost, this Martian custom is one of the reasons men instinctively offer solutions when women talk about problems. When a woman innocently shares upset feelings or explores out loud the problems of her day, a man mistakenly assumes she's looking for some expert advice. And so he puts on his Mr. Fix-It hat, and he begins giving advice. This is his way of showing love, of trying to help. He wants to help her feel better by solving her problem. He wants to be useful to her. He feels he can be valid, valued, and thus worthy of her love when his abilities are used to solve her problems. But once he's offered a solution, however, she continues to be upset. And it becomes increasingly difficult for him to listen because his solution is being rejected and he feels increasingly useless. He has no idea that by just listening... With empathy and interest, he can be supportive. He does not know that on Venus, talking about problems is not an invitation to offer a solution. We have an illustration in our own marriage. of um, Our daughter Joanna is now 20 years old, but when she was first born, she is a delightful 20-year-old, but she was not a delightful infant. (laughs) she uh and I was a new mom I was one of the uh first among my friends to have children and so I I was completely clueless completely clueless and I had been up all night with her most nights and it came time for her 10-day checkup and Jay had meetings and stuff going on at the church and so he wasn't able to accompany me and I wasn't able to drive yet because I'd had a very difficult delivery and so a friend offered to take me so we bundle up Joanna in the car, one of the first times I've even been out with a baby, so I don't know what I'm doing, you know, I get out of the junk going on. We go to the doctor's office. We wait for days at the doctor's office. Um, she's upset. She's crying. I'm upset. I'm crying. Um, we finally get into the doctor's office, of which, you know, he strips her of her clothes and pokes her with needles and measures her head, which, you know, of course made her even happier. And it was, it was just... I was a mess by the time this doctor's visit was over. At the very end of our visit, the doctor says to me, well, she appears to be healthy, 
But I do think she's jaundice. I don't know what that means. I've never heard that word before. Sounds like a deathly disease to me. So I say, jaundice? What does that mean? And he said, well, you see how she's kind of yellowy? I was thinking, I thought that was pretty. You know, I thought she had a nice tan. It seems good. Um, other babies were so pale. But um, so he says, I really think you're going to need to take her to children's for some more tests. Well, he might as well have said at that point, get on a rocket ship and head to the moon. I was no more capable of doing that at that point in my life than, than going to the moon. So we get out of the doctor's office. I'm still in tears. I say to my friend, just take me home. I just want to go home. So she takes Joanne and I home. And the doctor had told me I was to strip down her clothing and strip off her clothing and lie her in the window. So we no, have... Not in the window, in a you know, cradle by the window, okay? Right. We, we don't want right. you to think we were that bad of parents, okay? <laughs> so she's laying in the window with no clothes on, screaming her head off. You know, I'm sitting on the sofa pretty much screaming my head off. And the phone rings. It's Jay. Hey, honey, how'd the doctor's appointment go? And I said, I want you to come home now. Now, using my keen husband senses, <laughs> I realized there was a problem going on here, you know. So I said to the guy that I was with, hey, can we do this later? I think I really should go home now, you know, kind of thing. And so I did. I went home. And when I got there, I keenly assessed the situation. Joanna, after Janet tells me, you know, Joanna needs to go to Children's Hospital. We need to get these tests done in order to find out what we need to do. And Janet is like way beyond exhausted. She hasn't been sleeping. She needs to rest. And so I've got the solution. I put Janet to bed. I took the baby and I went down to Children's Hospital to get these tests done. I'm, you know, I'm on the way back after hours, you know, at Children's Hospital. I'm on my way back thinking she's going to be in there holding my husband of the year trophy. That's what's going to be going on here. Meanwhile, I've been asleep about an hour. I wake up. I'm feeling much better. And I think, okay, we're ready to deal with the situation. I go downstairs my baby is gone. So is my husband, but I don't really care. My baby is gone. Now, this is 20 years ago. We don't have a cell phone. You can't just pick up your phone and say, where are you and what have you done with my baby? Plus, I'm also nursing. And I know Joanna needed to eat. She needed to eat when we got home. But I thought I was going to take a little nap and then we'd all be better. So I am seething. It's hours. He's gone hours. He walks in the door. Well, she didn't have that husband of the year trophy. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Jana was upset. Jana was upset. And yet again, here I am thinking I have saved the day. And I didn't agree. Take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 7. It says, this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. 
I, what I want you to understand here is Hannah, she is at the pit of despair. She is in a deep depression. Now, I'm not excusing her behavior. She wept and refused to eat. But what I do want you to understand is, obviously Hannah is very, very upset about life in general at this point. Now I want you to read verse 8 with me. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? This is my favorite. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? No. <laughs> the poor guy just doesn't get how, how, how desperate Hannah is. You can almost even picture kind of a, a Tim Allen grunt going on there when he says those words. So, men, here's what we need to take home from this situation and what we've talked about so far is this that we need to learn to listen and to love our wives instead of always trying to fix their problems. And women, what we need to learn in our marriage, and preferably even before our marriage, that this Prince Charming or this princess is not ever going to meet all of your needs. Even if they want to. That's why I love this picture of marriage here. Because you see Elkanah is trying. He does love Hannah. And often our spouses have tried. But here's the problem is, early in the marriage, the spouse tries. But they continually meet with this anger and this dissatisfaction. And what happens eventually? Yeah, they stop trying. Which makes us even and more dissatisfied and it's this downward spiral that starts to happen in our marriage and so here's the second point i want you to grab this morning is this that we must not turn to our spouse as the source of fulfilling our deepest needs We've got to learn not to turn to our husband not to turn to our wives or not to turn to any human being to fulfill those deepest needs that we have. And this is a problem that goes all the way back to the fall. You remember last week, Pastor Steve talked about God's design for marriage. And he talked about it from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And then he said, and then came Genesis 3. Well, in Genesis 3, that's where the fall takes place, where man and woman, where Adam and Eve choose to disobey God. They take the fall of mankind into sin. But as a result of that fall, women find it difficult to not to turn to a man and demand that he be the one to meet her needs, that he be the one who provides her sense of security, that he be the one that protects her identity. And by the same token, men, we find it hard to not turn, to not find our significance in the work of our hands. But see, instead, what we must learn to do is to find our sense of security, to find our sense of significance, to find our sense of identity, who we are in God alone. 
Which brings us to point three on our outline. Disappointments need to be taken to God. Follow along with me as I read 1 Samuel 1, verse 9 to 17. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. You may even want to take out a pen and underline some of these words. Look up at verse 10 where it says, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept and prayed. What I want you to understand is she honestly brought her problems to God. Look at verse 15 where it talks about her pouring out my soul to the Lord. Verse 16, I have been praying here out of great anguish and grief. Hannah told God what was on her heart. Why is it that so often as women and as men, we use God as our very last resort? Women, we want our spouses to come through for us. But they're not able. That is not the way God wired them up. God wired us up that only he can truly meet our needs. So when it doesn't work, when that husband of ours will not come through for us, we turn to fantasy. We turn to those romance novels. Here's what I want you to know about the men in those novels. They're not real. (laughs) They're made up. We turn to magazines. We turn to self-help books. Men turn to pornography to get that need met. Something to make me satisfied. Something to make me feel better. 
as women and as men, oftentimes we turn to our kids. Life is not turning out the way I want it, so Johnny, it's all on you, buddy. (laughs) Or we turn to our jobs. In this day and age, there are so many workaholics. We work hours and hours and hours. Why do we do that? Because oftentimes we're getting that pat on the back that we so long for at home. We are workaholics because in some way that is meeting a need. We turn to friends. All of a sudden, time, all of a sudden we're spending more time out with the girls because they understand me. Or guys are going out on guy nights. And meanwhile, we are spending so much time doing other stuff to get that need within us met that we're not spending any time with our wives and our kids. And we wonder why we're growing more and more distant. Here's the other thing I think is interesting. Is Eli the priest? Did he get it? He didn't get it either. He thought she was drunk. Guess what? Even your pastors won't come through for you all the time. It's not going to happen. God is the only one who can meet our needs. We are out there trying everything else. And meanwhile, here's God standing with his arms wide open going, come to me. I can handle it. God can handle your open and honest feelings. He can handle you coming to him and saying, this stinks. I don't like it. And I need you to take it. God is waiting for us. If you have a question on, you know, is God really... Read the Psalms. Read about David who constantly went before God and told him his raw emotions, what was happening in his very soul. And so we need to learn to take all of that to God. Take our hurts. Take our frustrations. Take our deepest longing. Take our disappointments to God. But not only do we need to take them there, here's the fourth point. We need to, our disappointments need to be left with God. We keep going in the story, and verse 18 tells us that Hannah said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then it says, She went her way, and she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. And early the next morning, they rose and they worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back to their home in Ramah. Now, let me ask you a question here. At this point in the story, has Hannah's circumstances changed? Not one bit, have they? And yet there's evidences right here in these couple of verses that, that she has left her disappointments with God. I mean, you see it visibly, you see it. It says that she eats and and her face is no longer downcast. You see it in her actions. She rises early and she worships God. 
she reconciles with her husband. So she has brought her disappointments to God. Now, maybe you're here and your problem is like mine. See, I don't have so much difficulty laying my problems at God's feet. My struggle is leaving them there. See? Well, Hannah did that. Let's keep going in the story. Halfway through verse 19, it says that Elkanah then laid with, his, with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah conceived, and she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now, this is where maybe the story disconnects with us. Because what happens in Hannah's story is she gets her heart's desire, right? But maybe that's not what happens in your story. In fact, does God promise, promise us that he'll always give us what we ask for? No, he doesn't. In fact, I'm really grateful that God sometimes hasn't given me what I've asked for. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, Garth Brooks said, thank God for unanswered prayers. Well, it's not that God doesn't answer, but he doesn't always answer them the way we want them to be answered. He doesn't always give us what we, everything we ask for. He won't necessarily change our circumstances, but I want you to see what he does promise. The other passage that's in there for you in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Just listen to these great words from the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That's what Hannah did. Bring it to God, is what he says. And then here's the promise. Don't miss this in verse 7. It's incredible. He says this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, God doesn't promise to always give us what we ask for, but he does promise to give us peace. He does promise to give us the grace we need in that situation to make it through. He does promise that he will be enough for us. And so maybe if there's something going on in your life right now, maybe if there's something going on in your marriage right now, let me implore you to bring those things to God and to leave them there. Verse 21 to verse 26, um, Hannah keeps her baby at home until he's weaned. And then Hannah brings her baby back to God. We'll pick up in 1 Samuel 1, 27 and 28. I prayed for this child and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life will be given over to the Lord. And she worshiped the Lord there. Hannah is now giving the love of her life Back to God. And this brings us to point five. God gives us peace in the midst of our disappointments. Heading on into 1 Samuel chapter 2. I love these verses. Verse 1 and 2. This is Hannah praying back to the Lord as she brings Samuel 
back to live with Eli. It says, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Who's she talking about? (laughs) For I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah is able to worship God. There is no bitterness in her her as she gives her boy Samuel back to the Lord. And in fact, there's a victorious attitude. She has seen God's faithfulness. Verse 19. Each year his mother made him a little robe, talking about Samuel, and took it with to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Each year, maybe you want to underline those words, each year, because years went on again. They would go to the temple to visit Samuel. And Eli would bless Elkanah and Hannah and pray for more children and then they would go home. In verse 21, Hannah did bear more children, but not right away. Hannah still experienced years of living with the hateful Penina and all of her children. And it makes me wonder if God wasn't asking her, do you trust me? Do you trust me to give you peace and fulfillment? And I think at some point, Hannah came to the fact that she said, yes, Lord, I do. Yes, God, I have learned to trust in your sovereignty. See, marriage is a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, it was designed by God. That's what we saw last week. But you know, it was never meant to take the place of our need for God. And so if we're going to succeed in our marriages, we have to put our our trust, our dependence on God alone. But here's the great part. Don't miss this part. When we do that, It frees us up to be able to accept and to love our spouse the way that God intended. But if we insist instead on demanding that our husband or that our wife come through for us, that they be the one to meet our needs, 
so that we feel loved or we feel accepted or we feel respected or they be the ones that we find our identity in. If we insist on demanding that from them, see, it doesn't bring us closer. It just pushes us further apart, doesn't it? In fact, this isn't just true in marriage. It's true in any relationship. Anytime you put that demand on another person, it's like this sucking sound that doesn't pull you closer. It pulls you further apart. But it is especially true in marriages. But see, here's the contrast to that. If instead we'll turn to God, it's like it's like this triangle where God is at the top and here's the one and here's the other, here's the husband, here's the wife, and God's at the top. It, it, the, the closer we will get to God the closer we'll get to each other, see? That it's in finding those deepest needs, those deepest longings in God that ultimately brings us to the place of being able to love our husband or love our wives the way that God intended marriages to be. Not not turning to our spouse, not turning to them to fulfill us, but finding it in God alone. And maybe you're here today and you're, you're thinking, you know, what, they are, what they're saying makes sense, but, but I don't know God. What you need to understand is that's the very first step. The very first step is you deciding that you really want to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. And you want to accept that payment for your sin. And you now long for that relationship with him. And part of accepting that relationship, though, is accepting that now God is the Lord of your life and not you. Part of entering this relationship with God is saying, Lord, I am now going to submit my life to you and to your authority. That has to be done first. See, salvation is that initial step of coming to the place where on the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we accept him into our lives and we surrender our lives to him as Savior, as Lord, that we're in. Because, see, you can't, you can't give love that you don't have, can you? It starts with entering into that relationship with Jesus. And so maybe this morning, what you need to do is you need to get that nailed down. You need to get that right. But maybe this morning you're here and you think, hey, I'm clear on that. I mean, I know that. I know I've received Jesus. He's, he is my Savior that, that stuff's taken care of. Maybe that's your situation this morning, but as you've listened to these words, you've realized, but you know what? I've been looking to my spouse for the things that only God can give. Maybe you've been looking to your job for the fulfillment that only God can give. Maybe you've been looking to some other relationship, some other situation, something else, and you haven't been seeking it in God alone. If that's you this morning, then here's what you need to do. You need to repent. 
You need to come to God and you need to say, God, forgive me for looking to something or someone else to fulfill the role in my life that only you can give. I repent of that. I turn from that. I choose to make you God alone in my life. Maybe you need to repent to someone else. Maybe you need to say to your husband or to your wife, honey, I I realize that that's what I've been doing. That I've been expecting you to fulfill things in my life that now I'm I'm realizing that you can't fill. I've been looking to you to, to be that for me. Maybe you need to repent not only to God, maybe you need to repent to your husband or to your wife. But see, when we get it in the right order, when we do it God's way, isn't, it, isn't that right? When we do it God's way, it works like God intended. Our lives work like God intended. Our marriages work like God intended. But we need to make sure we get that cart and that horse all in the right order. Well, let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I pray for the the person that's here this morning and as they've listened, maybe they've realized for the first time that they need a relationship with you as the Savior of their life. Lord, help them this morning before they leave here to take the steps to get that nail down, to be clear on that, that they've received your death, Jesus, to pay for their sin and they have entered into that relationship with you. Give them the the courage, give them the steps to take action to make that happen. And also I pray, Father, this morning for those of us that are here that the issue is not our salvation, but the issue is what we're turning to instead of you. Lord, my prayer that is in these next just few minutes, you'll, you'll give us crystal clarity on this and we'll see I've been turning to this I've been I've been approaching my wife all wrong I've been approaching my husband all wrong and trying to get from them what God I could I should only be trying to get from you or that that if that's us that you'll give us give us the wisdom to see that and then the courage to take the steps in response to that I pray it all in your name and for your glory amen